You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt McGacky, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians, talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Sarp Kesky of Bipolar Architecture. There's this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello and welcome to Indie Ninjas Attack, your secret guide to music industry domination for indies, managers, and artists. Powered by Indie.Ninja, the freelance platform for the music business. I'm your host, Matt Bacon of Dropout Media. And on these podcasts, we will be having real, practical conversations with some of the most respective names in the business. From the studio to marketing, we'll get you covered. On today's episode of Indian Ninjas Attack, we'll be talking to Mark Urselli. He started in the business as a teenager, producing bands, playing in bands, all that good stuff in Italy before moving to America, where he started working at Eastside Sounds, where he is now the head producer. He's won multiple Grammys, worked with artists like Elton John, U2, Kesha, the list goes on, but he's really notable for having produced over 100 records for John Zorn. Right now, he's working on an amazing album called Steppendu that is doom metal meeting the music of the step. So what this means is he has people like Matt Pike Asleep, Steve Von Till of Neurosis, members of Paradise Lost, members of St. Vitus, all coming together with famous throat singers on this amazing record that I've heard pieces of it, and let me just tell you, it's pretty mind-blowing. Anyway, on to the show. Hey, so we are here today with Grammy-winning producer, Mark Urselli. How are you, Mark? I'm very good. How are you, Matt? You know, just screaming into the void. <laughs> We're very honored to have Mark Urselli here in his studio. For the uninitiated, can you elaborate on who you are and some of what you've done over the years? Sure. I always feel weird dropping names, but I've been blessed to work with a lot of great musicians throughout the years. I started my career in Italy where I opened a recording studio when I was 17. Around the age of 21, I moved to New York for an internship in a recording studio called Eastside Sound. And 20 years later, I now uh, run that studio as an engineer, chief engineer and uh, studio manager. God Emperor. What's that? God Emperor. <laughs> yeah. I've been, uh, I've been working on rock, jazz, metal, and electronic music, primarily, primarily those three genres, those four genres. Uh, for the last 25 years, I've won two uh, Grammys for a, um, a record with the, called Les Paul and Friends, American Made, World Played, which was a uh, celebration record for the 90th birthday of... Les Paul, uh, in which he did, did duets with Sting, Joss Stone, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Keith Richards, Buddy Guy, blah, 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 many, many others. Um, I 
was uh, nominated for Grammy Awards with uh, Laurie Anderson, with uh, Roy Hargrove, uh, more recently Claudia Acuna. Um, and uh, I have a new record that just came out called Angel Headed Hipster, the songs of Mark Borland and T-Rex. Uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. What I wanted to get into on this episode of the podcast was sort of the importance of hiring a producer, because I think something you, or mastering engineer or mixing engineer, both of which are things you do, right? Um, Wherein lies the importance of hiring studio people to you? Well, I think, first of all, we should define those roles clearly for those listeners who might be unaware of the differences that there are. Uh, A recording engineer, obviously, is the person responsible for doing the recording in the studio. The mixing engineer is the person that mixes it. Oftentimes, it's the same person. I, for example, do both. The mastering engineer is the person that does the last phase of making sure all the sounds, all all the songs on the record sound cohesive. Uh, There's no, you know, blaring differences in volume between the songs. Um, and other technical things like titles, spellings, timings between songs, etc. And the producer is the person that's usually present throughout all of those stages and before those stages with pre-production, before going into the studio, is the person that basically uh, sees the project through, helps the artist achieve their vision and makes... Uh, makes certain calls that have an artistic influence over the final product. So forgive me if I went into that, but I want to make sure the differences are clear before we talk about when it's it's good to hire one such person. Uh, It goes without saying that you should never skimp on the uh, recording part and the mixing part because... If you don't record well, there's nothing good to mix and therefore your album is going to not sound as good as it could. So if you're choosing between recording it yourself or thinking about recording yourself or going into the studio and hiring a recording engineer, you should by all means have it recorded professionally in a professional studio by a professional recording engineer. And you should have it mixed by a professional mixing engineer. With that said, it, those, I believe, are musts. Having a producer is not a must. Having a producer is a decision that you make at a certain point in your career, which you have to be okay with making and you have to be ready with making because people can hire producers and then realize they didn't, they didn't really want a producer in the first place because they have such a specific idea of what they want that having an outside influence takes them away from their end goal. So it really depends on where you are in your career and how much, how controlling you want to be of the product. If you're ready to let go and listen to other people's um, ideas, solutions, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et Some people are better than the, at that than other other people. Other people, I know a lot of bands that are not really ready to work with a producer because they're too set in their own ways, and that's just going to do a disservice to their music. 
So I guess the obvious question is that, you know, you have bands coming out on some pretty major labels who maybe the members themselves aren't actually recording engineers or whatever, but they did all the mixing themselves and the entire process themselves. Maybe they went into a studio, but they didn't even have an engineer. You know, you see this happen a fair amount. How- it's a terrible idea. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. Is how do you justify the cost? Well, it's relatively simple. Would you get onto a plane and say, you know what, I'm going to pilot this plane myself. Would you, I don't know, fix your the electric in, in your entire house? People do that whether it's not piloting a plane, but whether it's fixing their electric or their plumbing or whatnot, and they do it to save money. And I understand that people have to save money. I understand the economics of today's music industry, but it's always a bad idea because A, you that is not what you do. Unless you are a prefor- prof- professional recording engineer, professional mixing engineer, you really have no place trying to do that. You should be focusing on the music. If you're going to do it, you have to accept that your work is not going to be recorded and or mixed as well as it would be by a professional. Number one. Number two, it takes, it distracts you from what you're doing. So if you are the musician on the record and you have to also worry about levels, keeping track of tapes, making sure disc allocation is is right, microphone placements, all the things that a recording engineer has to do and has to concentrate on, you are unavoidably being taken away from what should be your sole focus, which is to make good music in the studio. And those two, I'm sure I could find more reasons, but those two reasons alone, I believe are enough to answer your question. Yeah. Well, I certainly think that um, I was talking about this with a client of mine who actually worked with uh, Kat Dale. Um, I think that sometimes it's easy to have Pro Tools and be like, oh, I can figure this out. And like, I feel like you can get something that sounds pretty okay. But to make it sound like, you know, ah. <laughs> Right. Like, I feel like that's where it's like, oh, like if I want to like actually impress people, I need to hire someone. Yes, but it's not only about impressing people. It's about getting the best out of your music and your performance. Yeah. That's when you should hire somebody. Look, I'm going to be very unpopular here and go, you know, go out on a limb and say that if you really care about your music, you should hire a professional. If you're taking yourself seriously and your career and your music, you should hire a professional. If you're not doing that, I understand, again, that it costs money and that it takes a lot of money to do things right. But if you want to do it right, I highly recommend you pay for those services. If you end up wanting to skimping on that, you're doing yourself a disservice. And I believe, sorry to say that, that it's very very, very arrogant of an art of a musician yeah. to say, I'm going to do this myself simply because I have 
a computer running Pro Tools because having the software does not make you an engineer. I can buy a license to use Microsoft Excel that does not make me an accountant. And I can do my own taxes to save money, but I bet you if I hire an accountant overall, I will have a much clearer picture of my finances in the years. So how does one, you know, I think this is where it gets interesting, right? Because I think that you have, you know, this very strong background in avant-garde music in, you know, avant jazz, all that, especially with the John Zorn stuff. And you obviously have a bit of a pedigree with the, you know, the Grammy Awards and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how do you, how would, how would you, you know, if you were talking to a musician and you didn't want to be like, just hire me, how would you encourage them to find what sort of recording engineers or recording professionals? Sorry, I want to just, you know, big scope. What, how do you, how do you, what advice do you give them to finding recording professionals in general? In general, I mean, it's relatively simply, I, I simple. I think people should just do their research and should yeah. listen to records that they like and go and instead of stopping at Spotify, go to, uh, uh, a service that gives you credits if you're in the digital world and you don't want to own the CD or the vinyl. Basically, go find out who recorded that that uh, album that you like uh, and, and see if there's a pattern between that record and other records that that engineer has has recorded or mixed, whatever the, chan- the case might be. Uh, if you do your research, you're going to f- find plenty of names, and I'm sure you can narrow it down to names that are in your area if you don't want to travel to one of these engineers. Obviously, uh, if you are in like not in a major city like New York or Los Angeles or Nashville, uh, there's maybe there's other ways. I'm sure there's other ways to go around the problem and start the search locally. So I would just... Uh, go on the internet and find what the studios are in your city or near your city and then reverse engineer from there. Yeah. Look at the look at the website of the studio, look at the websites of the engineers that work in that studio, look at what records they've done. See, you don't have to it you you don't have to be wanting to sound like Metallica or Sepultura or whoever your favorite band is and then backtrack from there. You can listen to an indie band you know a local band that has the sound you're looking for and just backtrack from there and find out who are the people that worked on that record and that's always something i think people don't understand is like a big piece of advice i give to people is so like when you're a chess player right you know your average chess player is rated 1200 and a grandmaster is 2400 and it doesn't make sense for a 1200 rated player to study grandmaster games because they're just not going to understand So, and it's the same thing with bands, you know, like you can't be like, oh, I'm going to base my decisions off Metallica. You have to base your decisions on bands who are 18 months ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, Metallica is always going to be ahead of you in terms of budget. Yeah, exactly. And so you you need to make a decision that's, you know, that's within the realm of possibilities. Yeah. And I think that just being aware of your community is really the key there. Absolutely. Your community is always a great indicator of the things that can be done uh, realistically uh, within your area, 
not just geographically, but your area of expertise, your area of budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So you were talking about traveling to like go work with someone. At what point would you think it's justified to fly out or even, you know, I remember Colt Leader did this a few years ago. They booked a tour out to go record with Kurt Bayou. At what point does it make sense to travel out to work with like one specific person? Well, I don't think you should do it on the first record if that's what you're asking. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was asking. But, uh, you know, I also can't really tell you whether you should do it on the second or or on the third record. I think you should uh, amass as much experience as you can. um, And whether it's whether you're ready for that on the second or on the third record, that's really up to you. Again, it comes down to how seriously you want to take your music, how ready you are to relinquish a certain degree of control, especially if you're talking about traveling to work with a producer and how ready you are to take a leap of faith into uh, like, you know, knowing, okay, I'm going to get on this plane in order to work on with this person because I believe this can give me the sound I'm looking for. So it's whenever you're ready for that. First and foremost, just because so there's yeah so there's two things so relinquishing control and then your own sound so just so we can kind of establish this so if someone was thinking about getting into going into a plane to work with you i mean they maybe shouldn't get into a plane to work with you right now but um you know in the middle of a pandemic but in general like what would you define as the mark urselli sound what do you feel that you could give someone that they might not be able to get otherwise? I I think the answer to that question lies in the records I've made. I get a lot of people that uh, contact me and say, I love your work on all those John Zorn records. And, you know, I've done over 110 of those John Zorn records. So ridiculous. And and so obviously if somebody's a John Zorn fan and they've heard any of his records in the last 15 years... They've heard my work, uh, but I've, you know, I've heard that kind of comment about other records as well. So in a sense, it's, you know, it's the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, all of these records together that make the sound that I can offer. But also, again, it depends on whether I'm being hired or involved into the project as a recording engineer, as a mixing engineer, as a producer or as all three or two out of those three sure. roles, uh, because obviously my influence is is different based on which caps I wear, which hats I wear. Of course. Now, when you, you were talking about, you know, because recording engineer and then mixing engineer is a little bit more, you have what you have. Um, but like in terms of producing, you were talking about relinquishing control. And... You know, the, the sort of the obvious question to me is that you are someone who works with some really, you work with some smaller bands and I've done a great job with them, like Superlinks. And you've also worked with, you know, you also work with John Zorn. You've worked with, you've produced Mike Patton. Um, you know, you produced a track with Keith Richards, right? Like, I would imagine that the amount of control you have over a Zorn or a patent record is very different than the amount of control you have over some smaller band coming to you just because they like that you worked with Lou Reed. You know, how do you, how do you figure out how much control you're going to end up having? And how does a band kind of tell you like how much control they're comfortable with you having? 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to answer that, but I just want to correct you on a couple of things. Yeah, of course. Uh, just because credit is due or credit is due. I haven't actually produced uh, Mike Patton. When I worked with Mike Patton, it was like either himself producing himself okay. or John Zorn producing Mike Patton. I'm sorry. No, no problem at all. I just want to make sure I'm not trying to take credit from other people. No, no, yeah. It's... And the same as with Keith Richards, that the track you're referring to where I actually played bass and recorded and mixed the track is a track with Keith Richards and Buddy Guy. Uh, and it's a track that was produced by a producer called Bob Cutterella, and it was on a Les Paul and Friends record that won two Grammys in 2005. But that said, um, the relinquishing control is is really something you have to be comfortable with doing, but it doesn't mean that you have to totally relinquish control. Working with a producer doesn't mean that you don't get to say your opinion. Exactly. It just means that you have to be open to hearing another person's opinion and ideas. And different producers work in different ways. You know, I work a lot with, worked a lot with Hal Wilner, who sadly passed away in April from COVID, uh, who produced this great record called uh, Angel Headed Hipster, the music of Mark Boland and T-Rex, or the songs of Mark Boland and T-Rex which is a record in which I've gotten to record and mix U2, uh, Elton John, Nick Cave, Joan Jett, so many great artists. Uh, but uh, he was the producer and I mention him because he's a very hands-off producer. He's yeah. somebody who's very much, well, very much lets the artists do their thing and doesn't tie anyone's hands behind their backs. He welcomes ideas from everyone in the room uh, and he, when he doesn't like something, he gently tries to steer the session in the direction that he envisions, but he does it in a very gentle way. And the, the best producers out there are the ones that know the psychology of what it means to be a producer, because there's so much psychology that goes into that role, much more in a way than technical knowledge. But there's also producers that are much more hands-on, that have very defined uh, idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, look about, I've never had the honor of working with Rick Rubin, who I really look up to, uh, you know, but people like, you know, Rick Rubin or Bob Rock have a specific sound that they go for and you can recognize from their records. Uh, everyone has their, their thing that they're recognizable for or by, but the artist needs to be open to that thing that the producer does. Uh, because otherwise it makes no sense for an artist to work with a producer. If an artist is really set in their ways and is completely unable to hear the music in any different way that, than how they've been hearing it in their head or in their rehearsal spaces, it's probably not a good idea to work with a producer. So can you elaborate for me a little bit on the psychology of being a producer? Sure. Psychology is extremely important because it's how a producer interfaces with the artist and the engineer, for that matter, if, he's, if the engineer and the producer are separate people. Um, it's important how you say things. It's important uh, what you say and when you say it. Uh, I'll give you a couple of random examples. For example, on a session I did many, many years ago with John Zorn, um, he was producing an album of his music in which he was not playing. He was only producing. The artist came in and the artist wanted to start with the 
with the most difficult song. And Zorn, if anyone knows Zorn, they know that he writes complicated music to execute. Um, and the artist says, I want to get do, do this first because it's the hardest song so I can get it out of my way. And Zorn said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to start with this. And he chose a simple song, an easier song to do. Um, and he didn't say to this, this to the artist, but in the control room, he said to me, I want them to start with a simple song because if they start with the hardest song, they're going to beat themselves for not... Um, you know, for because if they have a hard time yeah. executing, they're going to beat themselves up for not getting exactly what they want or what I want. I'd rather get them comfortable, get them into the right uh, spirit, into a positive spirit, so that they can start, get accommodated, get accustomed to the studio, to the music, and then they can do the hard song later. That's one example of how somebody, without telling the artist the reasoning behind wanting to do another song, achieved something that in the end served the artist, served the producer, and served the record. That's one example. I can give you countless examples like these, like with Hal Wilner, when he was producing, Hal would always say, you know, would always let the artist do whatever they want. Uh, and if the artist had an idea, they were he was totally open to the idea. And... If he didn't like the idea, he would say something like, why don't we try a, I don't know, Lenny Bruce version? Or why don't we try, why don't you try to think of this artist? And he would give, you know, gentle nudges this way uh, or in such a way that it would nudge them in a certain direction without saying, that really was awful. I don't like what you did at all. Why don't we do do some completely something completely different? So in a ma- in a way, the way he's saying something or not saying something is letting the artist still be comfortable and not feel like they haven't done what they were supposed to do to please the producer. Yeah, and I mean simultaneously, some people thrive off people being harsher to them and being more like, "No, do it again." better i i don't know anyone that thrives on that (laughs) i mean i mean i don't know i don't know i think it's much more it's much better to receive constructive criticism and not to receive destructive criticism but maybe there's masochists out there that like the destructive criticisms i don't know so let's say... Or, sorry, to interrupt, I'll give you another great example of something Zorn does, which I've sure. seen many, many times. Zorn will uh, produce somebody and be like, and have an idea, um, and he will like some things, but not others. And what he, what he does is he'll tell the artist all the things that he liked about a certain take before he even says something he doesn't like. So he never starts the sentence by saying, really didn't like that, that sucked, or that we need to redo that. No, he would first praise them for all the good things they've done in that song, in that take. And then at the end, just as a simple little almost afterthought, he would say, the only thing I didn't like was this, or the only thing we need to change is this. Again, it's it's a psychologically gentle and effective way to be constructive and to still get your points like, point across it's the how to win friends and influence people thing yes somewhere in the, li- in right. the mark Roselli library right there on the on the shelf let's say you know for 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 producers at 
ear level, you know, it's 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 a pretty expensive endeavor. What happens when someone shows up? I'm they, not that expensive. <laughs> Trust me, I I know no, no, way I know. more many producers but, 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 are way but, but, more expensive but, 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 than. But me. you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> let's say someone puts down a, a what is to them a bunch of money. Yeah. Um. And then they show up and they just don't want to be produced. You know, like like they they just like for whatever reason because you know how sometimes it is via email people are nice and then they get there and you're just like. You know, you gently try to be like, hey, maybe let's try this again. That bend wasn't really the bend that it should have been or the timing could be a little tighter or whatever. Right. And then like, you know, so you get there and it's just not working, but they've already paid you. What do you do? Um, I haven't been in that particular situation, to be honest. Okay. Um, I've, you know, when I work with artists as a producer, I make sure that there's a common understanding as to what they want and what they expect and uh, and what, what what we can achieve as a as a ensemble of people so i haven't been in that specific uh, situation but i'm sure i am confident that i can always find a way to make it work because ultimately that is one of the uh yeah. you know things that distinguishes a producer and makes sure uh who has to make sure that things actually work and there's also since we're talking about money, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about specific numbers, but I, I'll say that oftentimes I'm approached by people who maybe want me to produce, but then realize it's, they don't have the budget to do it. It doesn't mean they can't work with me. For example, um, you know, Superlinks, the band you mentioned earlier, is a great doom metal Amazing. band from Norway, from Oslo, that I, that I saw at Inferno Festival when I met you. Uh, I really like them. A lot, and I went. I remember you talking to me about that that day. Yeah, I really. They blew me away. They were out of all the bands. They were the one that I preferred of the festival, and so I went to them after a show and talked to them. And I said, "I'd love to work with you guys." We kept in touch. When it, you know, a year or two later, came down to them uh, wanting to record, and we talked about me producing because I would have liked to produce, uh, but it just wasn't in the cards this time around, budget-wise. It would have involved. You know, me flying or they, them flying. That's where it gets really difficult. There's a lot, yeah. And, and But I still wanted to very much work with them. And yes, maybe as a producer, I would have, you know, maybe nudged them in certain directions where possible. But I was still able to offer them my sound and offer them uh, my expertise. And they were super happy with the result. I mean, they wrote me a beautiful email. I just got it last week in which they were That's awesome. super thrilled about the results even though i was in the end i didn't produce it i simply mixed it but you know but we did some pre-production you know during the initial recordings they were sending me tracks to show me what they were doing and i was giving them feedback on mic placements mic choices uh to make sure that we'd get the sound we wanted for okay so that's that's really cool and important to kind of elaborate on but i guess the question is like you talk about this common understanding how do you establish because this is something i struggle with my own work you know how do you establish a mutual understanding with um with a band by talking i think mutual understandings are um are a matter of communication you want to make sure you communicate very clearly to the 
uh, with the with the artist. Uh, and if you do so, you know, then I don't think there's going to be any issues. It's it's like it's like any relationship. It's like the relationship you have with your partner, with your parents, whatever relationship. If you don't talk as adults, if you don't communicate, you're going to have a hard time time understanding each other. If you communicate, you're going to understand each other. And if there's enough communication, there's enough of a base to know whether it's it's going to be a good idea to work together or not. What are some red flags when you're talking to a band? What makes you go like, oh shit, this is not going to be good? I mean, the f- the first red flag is the one that I mentioned earlier of somebody being too set in their ways. Yeah. And when I see that, I, I'm the first, even though, even though it goes against my income, against my interest yeah. financially, I'm the first person who says... I don't think you need a producer. I think you just need a mixing engineer, assuming you've recorded it well, or if you haven't recorded it yet, you need a recording engineer. Let me record it and mix it for you, and I'll make sure that it sounds exactly like what you have in your head. Because you're approaching me as a producer, but you have a very, very... You're a control freak, for example. That's a red flag. Or you are a... Uh, you're, you want something that sounds exactly like something that I don't like, for example. That's another red flag. It's I'm not going to be able to produce a record that sounds like something I don't like, uh, but I can record it properly and mix it properly. Uh, if, like, I don't know, if, if, if a band, not that this has ever happened, but if a metal band came to me and said, I want to sound like Katy Perry, as a producer, I'd have a hard time getting there. You know, but if we record it well, I'll mix it and make it sound like Katy Perry, if that's what you want. We, we, we touched on this a little earlier, but where do you feel your expertise lies as a producer? And how do you think producers can identify what their expertise is? I think producers figure that out in the course of their career. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to figure out, though? I'm not sure I have. I mean, I have an idea of what it could be, but it's usually other people that that figure it out. Meaning, you might think you have a certain expertise. Other people might see a different expertise Absolutely. from you. You know, and those two things are not necessarily the same. But I like to think that my expertise is um, similar to that of Hal Wilner, uh, who was a mentor to me as a producer in the sense that I love to find the right person for the right project. I love that uh, that matching uh, game, not a game, but you know what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. like, I love being able to say like, for this song, this person would be great. Or for this sound, this person would be great. It's almost like a movie director that chooses an actor for a part or writes a part for an actor, which by the way is how Zorn writes his music, not to keep going back to Zorn, but... No, yeah, we he, talked about this before. Yeah, we did. I mean, he always he writes things with musicians in mind rather yeah. than writing music and then picking the musician. Whatever, the whatever, however you get there can be different. But I, that is, as a producer, that is one of my strong suits is finding right people. So it's the networking that's part of the appeal. Well, I, I'm not saying that I do it for the networking. If no, usually, but I'm saying like... 
like for me, I get a lot of joy out of being able to connect people. Absolutely. And so, but so part of your strength is your ability to, like, I know networking is a gross word, but like part of your strength is your ability to have this network and be like, oh, I know the right saxophonist for this. Yes. And it comes, it's, it's more like a, it's more the result of networking that's already been done. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Than doing a session for the purpose of networking. But, of course, uh, you usually it's 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 always a result of experiences for example as a producer i'll give you an example of what i do every time i work with a musician if i like that musician i usually get phone numbers and email and in my con in my address book on my phone i write down what what they excel at uh what genres they play how well they play or how well they can do something or not do something else and I have notes like these for a lot of musicians so that and then I in the job uh, description, job title line of the iPhone, I always write what they play and maybe the genre. So when I'm looking for a guitar player, I can just type and I write the city, which is important. You write the what? The city, oh, whether okay, yeah. they're in New York, in London, in L.A. So if I'm looking for a guitar player in Los Angeles, I can just who writes rock in my phone i can just write guitar rock los angeles and i'll get a list of all the guitar players that i know that i've worked with or that i have numbers for and i also write down their prices if i have them available in my iphone so that i know who i can call for what and i've been doing that for years and years and years and i write for drummers i'll write notes for example like he can play to a click or he can't play to a click so if i need a rock drummer for or a punk rock drummer or a, I can call one guy but if it needs somebody that needs to be super in the pocket for some funk project I can call another guy and so on and so forth yeah and you build this up over the years yes I have more than 7,000 contacts in my address book and I've been building it since for 20 years that's amazing what's the longest someone's gone between getting added to your address book and then you actually hitting them up for a job I mean, you know, I wish it were different, but these days there's very limited budgets. And so it's not as it used to be where, you know, there there was a lot more money in the record industry. There were a lot yeah. more projects. Nowadays, most of the things that I do are things where there's already a band or a core mm-hmm. of people. And so I don't have, sadly, the opportunity to throw around sessions like I used to in the past. But I'll give you a story. I went... I went to see um, many, many years ago, 15 years ago, I went to see, um, uh, what was his name? Victor, I forget. Uh, he's a great guitar player who then I saw in a Beatles movie. Uh, great guitar player, singer, um, sort of sounds like, you know, looks like Lenny Kravitz. Uh, Victor something, amazing musician. I loved the band but what i really loved that night was nikki glassby on drums she was killing it and i remember the whole night even though it was victor's concert i was watching her and i was focusing on her so what the first thing i did was after the session i went to her and i said i love your drumming i would love to call you to work with you and find a project where we can do so we exchanged numbers and I think about three or four or five months later, I had a project that called for a really funky, in-the-pocket, powerful drummer. And I was like, this is for Nikki Glaspie. And I called her 
And she said, I just left on tour with Beyonce for God knows how long. So I clearly I was not the only one that had noticed her. But there's an example of how long it can take from sometimes it can take over a year. But if the right project comes along, I'll make sure to call the person. Yeah, then the dots connect. Yeah. And so then I guess the final question is now that we're in sort of the age of COVID, how do you see yourself moving forward as a producer? The age of COVID is temporary, first of all. So uh, eventually, however long it will take, we will get through this. Uh, There will be some semblance of life that restarts. We're going to start making records again. That said, I made a record in the last three days with Zorn in the studio. So records are being made. Uh, Obviously, the business has moved a lot more online. So uh, I haven't yet produced a record over Zoom, but I've... Uh, I've been mixing tons of records where I talk to people sometimes over Zoom, most most likely simply over email, and I simply mix records for them from all over the world. I think there's going to be a lot more of that in the coming months. Um, and But eventually we will go back to making records in the studio, and I look forward to that day because ultimately the magic happens in the studio, Absolutely. especially when it comes to recording. Doing things long distance is great. It's a great way to stay creative, to stay positive, to create throughout these difficult times. And it's a good way to foster collaboration, creativity. But it's a temporary way, just like YouTube concerts are live streams of concert. It's something you do because you don't have the real thing. Yeah. But once you have the real thing, we're going to go back to the real thing. I hope. I agree. I hope. I hope this. Is, I hope COVID is not like Napster for music. Meaning, I, I hope, don't think it will be. I hope that we're gonna go back to the human interaction that happens at a concert, and that it's not yeah. gonna be like people are gonna suddenly not care for live music anymore. I don't think that'll be the case. But point being, thank you very much for coming on to this episode of the podcast. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having. Always me. an honor. That's it for this week's episode of Indie Ninjas Attack. Next week, we'll be talking to Matthias Bluthorn, former marketing guy over at Columbia Records, about his new label. And the conversation is incredibly enlightening. This episode was produced and sound designed by Brad Worrell at Soundway. Music by Outburst and Killing Time, courtesy of Blackout Records. Indie Ninjas Attack is powered by Indie.Ninja, the freelance marketplace for the music business where you can hire designers, motion graphic experts, and top marketers to help you with all the thankless, invisible jobs that go into launching a record or career. Opinions expressed on this podcast may or may not be the opinions of Indie.Ninja, Inc. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.